If you live according to the flesh, you shall die. But if by the Spirit you mortify the deeds of the flesh, you shall live. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. We've been working our way through the Ten Commandments, and because of the massive confusion in our society, we've been trying to build a really solid foundation to understand the Sixth and Ninth Commandments. Through it all, we've seen one consistent theme. The incredible importance God attaches to the great creative power. Let's review. When we started, we considered the amazing fact that although God could have continued making men, just like he did the first one, from scratch, just out of the slime of the earth, and breathing into them the breath of life, although he could have continued making men like that, he didn't. Instead, God shared some of his incredible creative power by blessing man and woman and making them the joint guardians of this incredible holy power in cooperating with him in bringing forth babies, immortal creatures. And precisely because his power of bringing forth new immortal beings is so incredible, so important, and so holy, God protected the creative power by wrapping it up with purity and modesty and then commanded that it only be used inside the boundaries of a very blessed and special state of life. A state of life that's so blessed that in the case of a baptized man or woman, God has raised it to the level of a sacrament, the sacrament of holy matrimony. We've seen that the primary purpose of this blessed state of life is the procreation and education of children. Since it's God's plan that babies not only be brought into the world inside a family, but also brought up in the world inside a family. So the constant theme is that the power to bring forth new life is a holy power which must be carefully shielded with modest and pure behavior. And it's God's special gift meant to be used by married couples and by married couples alone. This point was made very clear by Pope Pius XI in his encyclical on Christian marriage. Quote, The primary end of marriage is the procreation and education of children. Since the duty entrusted to parents is of such high dignity and of such great importance, every use of the faculty given by God for the procreation of new life is the right and the privilege of the married state alone. And it must be confined absolutely within the sacred limits of that state. Close quote, the Vicar of Christ. The primary end of marriage is the procreation and education of children. The duty entrusted to parents is of such high dignity and of such great importance that every use of that great creative power is the right and privilege of married people alone and must be confined absolutely within the sacred limits of that state of marriage. It's critical for each one of us to firmly grasp that point. That's where the war is right now. Our enemies in the culture of death are using television, 
movies, videos, popular music, the internet, magazines, public schools, all their weapons of mass destruction to constantly blast away and attack this very idea. Once we see this clearly, it's easy to understand the sixth and ninth commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. On the one hand, these two commands require each man to preserve purity of his mind and body by regulating that great creative power in accordance with reason and faith. On the other hand, these two commandments prohibit him from sinning against that power in thought, word, or deed. Let's consider how these commandments apply to both the married and to the unmarried. The married, as we've seen, the primary purpose of marriage is the procreation education of children, secondary purpose of marriage, mutual help and comfort of spouses, and a remedy for concupiscence. Acts between spouses are good to the degree that they conform to these two ends of marriage. The general principle is this. Everything in conformity with these two purposes, the procreation education of children is, and also mutual comfort and relief of concupiscence, everything in conformity with those two purposes is good and permissible. Anything opposed to them is evil and forbidden. Examples of evil and forbidden acts would include adultery, contraception, and direct sterilization. The unmarried, in order to preserve modesty and not corrupt innocence, will only consider one sin. Once we understand that, we'll understand all the other permutations. While speaking about the unmarried, Pope Alexander VII condemned the idea that it is only a venial sin for the unmarried to kiss for the sensual pleasure arising from the kiss, even if there's no danger of further consent or going any farther. It's condemned to say that it is only a venial sin for the unmarried to deliberately kiss for the pleasure of kissing. That's a condemned moral error. What does this mean? St. Alphonsus explains, quote, This means that every time someone, with sufficient reflection and full consent of the will, delights in carnal or sensual pleasure associated with someone with whom he is not married, he commits a mortal sin. This is not only true with kisses, but also with respect to other touches performed seeking the same type of pleasure. The reason is the delight taken in that sort of pleasure, that is to say, the delight taken in stirring up appetites that surround the creative power, is a movement towards the marital act. Close quote, the doctor of moral theology of the Universal Church. Every time someone with sufficient reflection and full consent of the will delights in carnal or sensual pleasure associated with someone with whom he's not married, he commits a mortal sin. The reason is any delight taken up in stirring the appetites around the creative power is a movement towards the marital act, and that is completely reserved to the married. Here's the point. 
for the unmarried, passionate kissing is mortally sinful. Why? Because it's passionate. The unmarried do not have a right to deliberately stir up those kind of passions, whether by thought, word, or deed. Those passions, those delights, those particular pleasures are reserved strictly for the married and only for the married. No one else. Now, once we understand that, we don't need to go through a big, long laundry list to explain which particular behaviors are right and which are wrong. For the unmarried, passionate kissing is mortally sinful because unmarried do not have the right to deliberately stir up that type of passion in thought, word, or deed. Now, when this topic comes up and people discover that passionate kissing is the privilege of the married, and a mortal sin for the unmarried, there are usually a number of people that are quite panic-stricken. Before we go any further, there's a little reminder to anybody that might be in that state. In order to commit a mortal sin, you have to know that it's a mortal sin. You have to know it's seriously wrong. So relax. I'm sure you didn't know that before. Be at peace, you're at safe, but don't do it anymore. Now you know. Go and sin no more. Now that we see the problem with passionate kissing, here's the basic moral principle that underlies all of it. It applies to thoughts, words, and deeds. All pleasure outside of marriage that is associated with the creative power, all of that type of pleasure that is directly willed or desired, intentionally procured or permitted, is a mortal sin for the unmarried. Therefore, it is a mortal sin for the unmarried to think, say, or do anything with intention of arousing even the smallest degree of this type of pleasure. Earlier on, we've already applied this principle to the case of immodest glances. We'll go over that quickly, but keep in mind it applies across the board to thoughts, words, or deeds. Okay? So we take the case of a glance which stirs up lust or is a near occasion of stirring up lust. That's what we're talking about, that kind of glance. Now, we're not talking about spouses. This is with people that aren't married. If there's no intention to this glance, say it's accidental, and no consent to the pleasure stirred up, there's no sin. No intention, no consent, no sin. If there's no intention but perhaps some faint consent before he realizes what's going on and rejects this, what the moralists call a semi-deliberate consent, then there's venial sin. If there's no intention and full consent, he's going, hey, all right, that's a mortal sin. If there's a direct intention, I am going to look at this bad video, that's a mortal sin. Okay, so it's easy if you remember this chart, keep in track. No intention, no consent, no sin, no intention, some consent, venial sin, no intention, full consent, mortal sin, direct intention, mortal sin. So no intention, no consent, no sin, no intention, some consent, venial sin, no intention, full consent, mortal sin, I intend to do this, mortal sin. All pleasure outside of marriage associated with the great creative power, all that type of pleasure is reserved to the married. Outside that, if it's directly willed or desired, intentionally procured or permitted, it's morally sinful. Okay, before we close, let's deal with a few typical objections with kissing. But Father, everybody does it. 
Ooh, now there's a convincing argument. Try that one out on your mom and then come back to the priest and let me know how it works. But what if we really like each other? Presumably, you wouldn't want to passionately kiss someone you don't like. But we're already engaged. All the more reason to be careful. You're still not married. Traditionally, the honeymoon comes after the marriage. Are you saying we can't kiss at all? No, of course not. Unmarried people can kiss. It's not necessarily a great idea. They certainly don't have to, but they can kiss. They can? Yes. The kisses allowed to the unmarried people are just like the kisses you'd give to your great-grandma or your great-grandpa. Kind of a little peck on the cheek kind of thing. That's not a passionate kiss, and that's just exactly what everybody that isn't married to each other is allowed to do. Okay, and that's it. But Father, no one can live like this. Naturally speaking, that may be true. But God never commands the impossible. That's why he gives us supernatural help. It's called sanctifying grace. We avoid the near occasions of sin. We say our three Hail Marys every morning and every night. We say our rosary every day. Go to confession every week or two and make fervent communions, and you'll be able to leave like this. Isn't that exactly what St. Paul is telling us in today's epistle? If you live according to the flesh, you shall die. But if by the Spirit you mortify the deeds of the flesh, you shall live. Indeed, we can live like that. Let's review. Today we finally consider the sixth and ninth commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. We've seen that the power to bring forth new life is a holy power, and God expects us to carefully shield it with modest and pure behavior. This power is God's special gift, which is to be used by married couples and married couples alone. We've seen that point emphasized strongly by Pius XI, who said, quote, The primary end of marriage is the procreation and education of children. The duty entrusted to parents is of such high dignity and of such great importance that every use of the great creative power is the right and the privilege of married people alone and must be confined absolutely within the sacred limits of the state of marriage. We've seen it to the degree that we clearly understand and see this idea that every use of that creative power is the right and privilege of the married alone. To that very degree, we'll be able to see and understand the reasons and the ideas underlying the church teaching with the sixth and ninth commandment. We'll be able to defend it in the face of this culture. We've seen that for the unmarried, passionate kissing is mortally sinful simply because the unmarried do not have the right to have those type of passions. They don't have the right to strip those passions by thought, word, or deed. Those passions, those delights, those pleasures are reserved strictly for the married. Once we understand that, we can understand whatever other kind of particular behaviors are wrong and why they're wrong. We've seen the fundamental principle that all pleasure outside marriage that is associated with that creative power that is directly willed or desired, intentionally procured or permitted, is a mortal sin. We've seen if that pleasure has arisen and there was no intention and no consent, there's no sin, no intention and some consent, it's a venial sin, no intention, full consent, it's a mortal sin, or direct intention, it's a mortal sin. Let's close. How high are the stakes in this battle to mortify the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit? Two points to ponder. 
St. Alphonsus, quote, Sins against the sixth and ninth commandments are by far the most common matters in confessions and are the sins which fill hell with souls. Since these are the most frequent and most abundant confessional matters, and on account of which the greater number of souls fall into hell, indeed, I do not hesitate to assert that all those who are damned are damned on account of sins against the sixth or ninth commandment, or at least not without them. Close quote. Second, on July 13, 1917, Our Lady showed the three little children at Fatima a terrifying vision. She opened her hands and the ground vanished and they found themselves standing on the brink of a sea of fire, a fire that was filled with huge numbers of devils that looked like black and horrible animals. They were filling the air with their shrieks. There were also huge numbers of damned souls that were tumbling around in the flames and screaming in terror and agony. And they also saw souls. It looked like a blizzard of snowflakes. There were so many souls falling into hell like snowflakes in a storm. Blessed Jacinta said Our Lady told her that more souls go to hell because of sins of the flesh than for any other reason. More souls go to hell because of sins of the flesh than for any other reason. If you live according to the flesh, you shall die. But if by the Spirit you mortify the deeds of the flesh, you shall live.